Hello everyone, I hope you've had a wonderful week and thank you for joining us again here at RTL in Luxembourg. It is of course Today Radio, you can find us on Apple and Spotify, RTL Play, so many ways that you might be finding this show. And this week I have a wonderful combination of guests, two very different guests, but as always we find a connection somehow. I've got Reverend David Usher joining us who is an old acquaintance of my colleague Meredith Moss and we also have Carlotte Minderhout and Jean-François Futz in the studio who are going to talk about the opening of Uniqlo this week in Luxembourg. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Very nice to be here. It's great to have you here. And in fact, uh, Reverend, I'm going to start with you. So just a little bit of your background for our listeners and viewers. Reverend David Usher, born in Adelaide in Australia, and you've been a lifelong Unitarian. You dropped out of university while studying to be an architect. And in your own words, you were a jackaroo in the outback for four years, working on remote sheep and cattle stations. You travelled solo for a year and a half through New Zealand, the Pacific Islands, Mexico, USA, Canada and the UK. And through this time, you decided to become a minister. Reverend David went on to study philosophy and theology at the University of Oxford and became a doctor of ministry from Andover Newton Theological Seminary in Boston, USA. You practiced as a Unitarian minister in England for nine years, then New Hampshire in the USA for nine years, back to the UK for 14 years, and now you're resident in California. Apparently you're now retired what I imagine is an active retirement. You're the author of two books, which we'll delve into, 12 Steps to Spiritual Health and Life Spirit. You're the founding president of the International Council of Unitarians and Universalists. And you're the father of three daughters, two based in London, one in Edinburgh. So a wonderful life you've lived so far. So, so varied and vast, and I would say unpredictable. When I look back on my life now, growing up in Adelaide as a very naive suburban kid, I could not have possibly imagined the life that lay ahead of me. I feel extraordinarily blessed to have lived where I've lived, to have done what I've done, seen the places I've seen. It's, I've been incredibly fortunate in life. Well, I'm sure part of that is you've made your own look and you have a very open outlook on life, made your own luck and an open outlook on life is what I am uh, saying. Uh, but let's start with a Unitarian. What is a Unitarian? Well, that's a harder question to answer than you might think because it varies from person to person. Uh, historically, it, it, the name came about as, a, as an opposition of Christians in the 17th, 18th century to the doctrine of the Trinity, they were Christians who said there's no scriptural justification for the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, God is one, Jesus was a great man, a great exemplar, teacher, prophet, but not the exclusive Son of God incarnate. Um, so the name Unitarian originally was like a term of abuse, but it came to be adopted. And um, But the history is different in the United States, in the UK, in Transylvania, in all the countries around the world. Because part of what is a Unitarian is that the ultimate authority for matters of faith is the individual. So you believe something because it is true to your own reason, conscience, experience, not because a priest or a church tells you what you must believe and what you would fear if you don't believe it. But that ultimate authority from ourselves and what we think comes from so many cultural influences and biases that we may not even know we have inside us. Quite, and um, which makes it all the more extraordinary, in my humble opinion, that it, how can any church or ecclesia or priest dictate to you what your experience of life should be? I, as a man, experience the world differently from how you experience it as a woman. I, as an able-bodied person, experience it differently from somebody who is physically disabled. Each of us is our own person, so uh, it is for us to use our own reason and experience to determine what is true for us, what is authentic for us, what is a guiding, what can be a guiding principle for us to help us live faithfully and well in this complex, beautiful and bruised world. 
That's a beautiful phrase. Now, you spend a lot of time seemingly roaming around in the outback, Jackaroo, you said. And that, for me, paints quite a religious picture because, you know, in many of the theological uh, tomes, we have the the prophets, the messiahs, etc., roaming around in the desert. Uh, and at this point, there's an enlightenment and uh, that seems to come when you remove yourself from the, the hackles of daily life, which is very, very busy. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's important for us to remove ourselves from our busy lives to feel spiritual? Well, it's certainly true that nearly all um, great religious teachers and leaders in, in history have had to withdraw from the hurly-burly of life. Jesus, certainly, the Buddha, uh, Muhammad, they've all had to find time to to be with themselves, to be with that which is holy for them, uh, because life is a very busy thing. Life very easily distracts you from ultimate truths. It's, all, it's true for us in our daily lives today. We're caught up in the, the business of living, <laughs> and life makes us forget the values we would otherwise hold dear. So yes, uh, as a jackaroo, there were many hours when I'd be roaring around in the scrub chasing sheep or, or whatever, when I had lots of time to think. And why did you do that? Why did you make the choice to do that? Well, I was a very naive suburban kid growing up in Adelaide. I had a very happy childhood, but I knew nothing about anything. And I was 19. I dropped out of university in Adelaide. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I happened to see a little two-line ad in the local Adelaide newspaper looking for a jackaroo. I didn't have the first clue what that meant. I just knew... I was still living at home with my parents. I just knew it was time for me to get out. Um, And it was a time of very low unemployment in Australia, so if you had a pulse, you could get a job. I had a pulse, so I got the job. But I knew I had no idea what I was going to. And it was challenging, it was difficult, um, it was not always easy, but it always felt like the right thing to be doing. And I ended up doing it for four years and then tell us about that time where you did, apart from learning the job of, of cattle and sheep ranching or whatever you were doing precisely, mm-hmm. <laughs> you did have time outside to think. What does that feel like? Because most of us don't have four years of time outside right. to think. Um, well, it's a long time ago now, so it's hard to remember in any clarity. But I, I remember it as a, as a time when basically I was growing up basically learning about myself, what I wanted to do in the world. And as a jackaroo, I was paid a pittance, but money was never a motivator for me. I was always more exper- more interested in doing something that felt worthwhile in itself, worthwhile for my own growth and development. So, um, you know, I, I think I always knew I was not going to be a jackaroo all my life. Um but it was a time of exploration and opening up, uh, dealing with some pretty challenging experiences. It wasn't always easy uh, and sometimes life-threatening. Um, but In, it, in what sense? Well, there's, uh, I guess the most significant time was that there was a very serious bushfire uh, on a neighbouring station and we were called over to help fight it and so for two three weeks we were fighting this bushfire that was raging completely out of control we might as well have stayed home for all the good we did trying to stop it but there were times when i was surrounded by the fire could easily have been caught up directly in the fire and that's uh, that was a sobering experience um but it's also it was a wonderful experience you know it was all um I guess it made me realise that there was a whole lot more to the possibilities of life than just following a sort of a predictable course, which I might well have done had I stayed in Adelaide. It seems that for many of us, you know, particularly those who have children, we feel we have to tick certain boxes. They have to go to school. Mm-hmm. Most people get the opportunity to think about university these days, etc. And that feels like the path that we're on. But you, you sidestep that path and then you travel the world. So when did this idea of becoming a minister hit you or did it? was it always there in the back of your mind? Well, I, 
Sunday school and the, the Adelaide congregation was a, a lovely part of my childhood. There were some wonderful adults in that congregation who were great role models, kind of surrogate parents. One woman in particular who remained a lifelong mentor to me until she died a few years ago in her late 90s. Um, so church was always had happy associations for me. Uh, and then, but I, you know, I wondered about being a minister, but it just seemed so improbable. And then I was jackarooing and traveling. But the idea of becoming a minister, especially when I was traveling, um, was, an, was an itch that wouldn't go away. And you mentioned that every, even when you were traveling through these different continents and countries, you would still find a church to attend. Right. On and Sundays. of any denomination, when I was, um, or non Christian denominations as well, I just found it a very helpful way for me to be in a space and a time that would help me clarify my thinking. Um, and perhaps it was a focal point of each week. And you mentioned also you got a, a meal often out of it. Well, exactly. I also <laughs> discovered, especially when I was traveling around North America, that turning up at a church on a Sunday morning with this funny accent was a great way to be invited back to somebody's place for a meal and then to be sort of hosted for the afternoon. So there was a certain mercenary uh, element in it as well. Well, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> and actually, you mentioned, you know, your, your life uh, in a man's body. You know, a lot of women wouldn't do that, for right. example. Yes, I um, certainly when I, I was hitchhiking around New Zealand and people were always lining up to give me a ride. It was so wonderfully, people were so wonderfully hospitable and welcoming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you end up at Oxford. I know. I got kicked out of Adelaide University. I ended up being a graduate graduate of Oxford. But Oxford, it's, a, it's an okay university. <laughs> people us, have heard of it. Yeah. How did you end up there then after well, the four years in the outback? Well, <laughs> it's of, not the usual path. No, I got in by the back door is the truth of the matter. I mean, I'd been a good student in high school. So, and then my there's a college in Oxford that is um, essentially the Unitarian college although not strictly not speaking not strictly speaking not and I was accepted to study for the ministry there and my first year was sort of general ministry studies and towards the end of that year uh, the original intention I was going to do some certificate in theology I don't really know where or how but the college said would you like to do a degree well I had to think about that for a nanosecond so I ended up doing a degree in philosophy and theology, which was an extraordinary and unexpected privilege. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you've definitely put your thinking to good use. And I want to get on to this because you've written two books. And I want to start with the first one, 12 Steps to Spiritual Health. I don't think it's the first one you wrote, actually. Well, they were kind of contemporaneous. Okay. So 12 Steps to Spiritual Health. And I think it's something that a lot of us are thinking about nowadays, because you will know better than anybody, the numbers of people going to a church, for instance, or I don't know about the other religions, but certainly for churches in, in the UK or Ireland, it's diminishing. Mm -hmm. And people, again, for Ireland, there are a lot of stories have come out in the news over recent decades that have not been positive. Correct. But people still care about spirituality. Mm -hmm. So what is spirituality? Well... That's a very difficult question because spirituality, we talk about it, but none of us really know what we're talking about because it, by its very nature, it's elusive, it doesn't get pinned down to neat uh, definitions. But my understanding of spirituality is, at its essence, it's about connection. It's about connection with various things. It can be connection with your own inner self, so the sense, perhaps you, I hope you've had this experience, when there are moments when you feel at one with yourself, you're, not that everything is necessarily going well in life, but you feel as if you are living the authentic life that you should be leading. So there's that connection with self, there's connection with nature, there's connection with real meaning and purpose in life. I mean, you might be enjoying your life but if you're doing it in a way that doesn't have a meaning or purpose beyond yourself and your own you know acquisition of wealth or of, uh, career success or whatever 
then it's a it's a very limited um, definition of self, I think. And then uh, connection with a sense of otherness, because let's face it, each of us is leads a very ephemeral life. Billions have lived before us, have lived and died. Basically, we're totally insignificant to the universe, and yet we're so important to ourselves, because as far as I know, this is the only life I'm going to lead. But if I lead it unconnected with the greatness of the universe and the otherness, the sense of mystery, wonder, awe, reverence, then, then it, for me anyway, it's like a shallow life. Mm-hmm. So for me, what I understand of, as spirituality is a sense of connectedness with myself, with nature, with the world uh, around me and the eternity of time. Well, I think you've put it very succinctly there. <laughs> I can see why you wrote the book. And and then with that, you talk about spiritual health and that, that sense of connection that we should have, that sense of harmony with the world around us, not just the circle we inhabit, whether it be in work or family or mm-hmm. friends, but also that harmony with the world. That's been tampered with a bit as we have the influx of things like this. I'm holding up my phone. Mm-hmm. So our world is now global. So how do you incorporate that and still feel rooted in the ground? Well, um, if I can just have a little sidestep here. We, underst- we understand what physical health is. So we, know, we all know that to be physically healthy, we should have a good diet. We should exercise. We shouldn't smoke. We should take alcohol in moderation. We all know that. We don't necessarily do it, but we know it in theory. But even however healthy we might be physically, if we want to do something out of the ordinary, like run a marathon, I can't just decide this morning, yeah, I think I'll run a marathon and go out and do it. You have to prepare for it. Uh, You have to train. You have to uh, discipline yourself to prepare for it. Also, as healthy as you might be, that's no guarantee against the diagnosis you know, you can be the healthiest, fittest person in the world and tomorrow you get a cancer diagnosis. That So life throws us challenges which physically we can prepare for, but it will, there'll still be some surprises. With spiritual health, we don't know what life is going to throw to us. And a lot of people think, and I'm being kind of sort of somewhat... Uh, facetious here. A lot of people think that spirituality is, you know, you, you light a scented, ca- scented candle and you have a warm bath and you'll feel kind of in harmony with the world. But in fact, every great spiritual teacher has taught us that sp- true spirituality and spiritual health requires discipline, practice, um, devotion, because we don't know what's around the corner. And life can throw us some, some, you know, difficult challenges. So, and the people that kind of the essence of my book is that the people who are better able to deal with whatever life might present to them are those who have done the exercise of preparing for, for their spiritual health, who have been disciplined in their practice, who've who've been aware of life in a way that is greater than the everyday mundaneness of what we all do. We're all caught up in the everydayness of life. I think we all want to know what this discipline means. What should we be doing? I, I think we can. And alongside that, in parallel to that, you spoke about the great teachers. And again, just thinking of your time in the outback, that there have been comparative well, I mean, I'm thinking of fasting, for instance. A lot of the great religions mm-hmm. say you should fast at some point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that seems to be now a great idea mm-hmm. <laughs> in just general health for longevity, etc. So can you tell us of these disciplines? What should we be doing to enhance our spiritual health? Well, so that led to me writing this book, 12 Steps to Spiritual Health. There might be other steps, but 12 Steps, as you know, is like the... It's the a good number. Alcoholic, Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous, 12 Steps. So I was borrowing from that. So the 12 steps that I came up with, 
Um, you can you don't need to do them all. They're not progressive. You don't do the first one and then the second one. There might be some that appeal to you more, as you know, according to your personality and your lifestyle. Um, but also, I think it's, there's benefit in tackling some of those uh, steps which are uncomfortable, which don't come naturally to you, as, because that's part of the challenge, is to expose yourself to something that is not immediately comfortable. So I came up with 12 steps. Other people might come up with 12 others. But for me, one was to have a your own personal practice. Now, that could be... Um, for a lot of people, that might be a physical practice of yoga or Pilates or prayer or meditation or some kind of physical exercise. It's not for me to dictate what that practice should be, but something that you do not as a habit but as a ritual to remind yourself to to be to be aware to because really spirituality is about awareness, and you know we're as you were saying earlier. We can be so distracted by life, we become unaware of things beyond our what is immediately in front of us. So a time, a space, a, a, a ritual that, that allows you to um, have that practice. Another practice, another step for me is be part of a community because there are very few people who can maintain spiritual health in solitude. All of us, nearly all of us, need other people to whom we are accountable. That can be a church congregation. It could be whatever. Um, as you said before in the introduction, church is not a place that many people naturally turn to now for some very good reasons, but it's still there as an example of what a spiritual community might look like. Um, uh, awareness of one's body um, and, and practices around one, one's body. You mentioned fasting. Um, fasting is a way of, I mean, it sort of cleanses the body in a physical sense, but it's also a way of be, making yourself aware of your body. I've, um, I've done fasting. The, mo the most intense one was for a 100-hour fast when I took only water. Um, and the extraordinary thing about that process is that the extraordinary thing, I never felt hungry. I really missed food. I missed the sensuality of food, became very aware of how much food dominates my daily life. The thinking about what the cooking, the prepping, the eating, the cleaning up afterwards, the shopping, it's like a big part of everyday life. And when you suddenly aren't doing that, it gives you time to sort of, it gives you extra time and it makes you aware of your body in a different way. And so many traditions include fasting, um, going out for a... Um, oh, I'm, now I'm, I'm blanking. The, the Native American practice of... And now I'm blanking about the word. Uh, Not a pilgrimage or something. No, but, but and certainly in Ramadan for the Muslims, the period if you don't take anything between sunrise and sunset... Uh, it's to become aware of the blessedness of the food that we do take in because I'm as bad as anyone. I snack without thinking about it. But if you're fasting, you're aware in a new way about the addiction that you have to food. Uh, another a necessary addiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't live without it. But um, when I'm fasting, I'll go into the kitchen and I'll see a cookie, and oh no, I can't eat that. Yeah, I can't work in the kitchen. I just keep <laughs> eating if I work in the kitchen. Another really important one for me is tithing, which is in the Christian tradition. It's certainly in the Islamic tradition that one of the five pillars is that you have to give away some money. And obviously, if you're tithing, whether it's to a church or whatever, that, that benefits that organization to which you're giving. But the, really, the real value of tithing is to acknowledge that whatever you have, it's not actually yours. You're the sort of the beneficiary, the, the, the passing beneficiary of it. And we know the, the story of Scrooge. You know, we think of Scrooge as this miserly man who's deeply unhappy, 
But the real story, the real moral of the story of Scrooge in A Christmas Carol is the, the transformation when he suddenly becomes generous. And that, that obviously benefits those around him, but he is transformed by, by suddenly sharing of his wealth. So tithing, it's not about making the world better, although it certainly does that, but about, it's about the recognition that um, a large part of what we have we should be sharing. It, it's a way of extending your sense of self uh, beyond the, the narrowness of our own immediate lives. It's also developing a community in a different right. way. And the extraordinary thing, when I talk to people about tithing, there are two reasons why people don't tithe. Oh, I'm too poor. I couldn't possibly give away 10% of my income. Oh, I'm too rich. If I gave away 10% of my income, that would be hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros or whatever the currency is. You know, like millionaires, I couldn't give away $100,000. Poor you, you'd only have $900,000 left. So whether, whether you're rich or poor, the people who do tithe, who have a sense of generosity beyond themselves, almost invariably are the people who are spiritually aware, have a, have a larger spiritual heart. And I started tithing um, when I had three young children, you know, with all the horror of parenting three children with school and dance classes and music and there was no way I thought I could afford it and the miraculous thing was the more I gave away the more the universe seemed to give to me in return so I never did without anything that I wanted to do needed to do and yet I was giving away 10 percent mm-hmm. so it's a, it was a wonderful revelation to me to discover that tithing actually enriched me financially as well as spiritually. It's so, also a beautiful word, I might add. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's sort of generosity. And the others, briefly, uh, you need to come to, sense, come to terms with your own mortality. Mm, that's a tricky one. <laughs> well, you know... I know we have no choice in the matter. <laughs> but, you know, the, the universe has a great sense of humour. As this book was being published, I got a cancer diagnosis. And it was extraordinary that I, um, having kind of gone through the intellectual exercise of thinking about this book and writing about this book, suddenly I'm confronted with my own mortality in a way that I had not anticipated. And I, and what I rec- recognized was I had no control over what was going to happen to my body. That was totally in the hands of the doctors and the medications that I would be taking and the chemo and all of that. There were only two things I could control. I could control what happened in my head and I could control what happened in my heart. So that was my challenge. So if I was to die, well, and it made me recognize that I had already, if I were to die much earlier than I would have hoped and anticipated, I already had had more and better than a lot of people ever have. So for me to feel angry and resentful that my life might end sooner than I had thought just seemed churlish. Um, The metaphor that I came up with in my own mind was that I'd been at the banquet of life and I'd, I'd, I'd enjoyed through all kinds of privileges that I had not earned but just were given to me by where I was born, when I was born, the parents who raised me, the life experiences I'd had. I'd, I'd, had this, I'd had the pride of place at the banquet of life. Maybe I was going to have to leave before coffee and liqueurs, <laughs> but it would be really ungrateful of me to say, well, that's not fair. So it was, a, it was just an extraordinary coincidence that I should have to deal with that having just written about the importance of coming to terms with your mortality. But other things like doing meaningful work, which is not necessarily your job, your meaningful work might be parenting, it might be volunteering in the community, it could be anything, not necessarily what you do for income. Um, Being in touch with nature, um, you know, there are other things 
I, I can go through the I whole list. I would like the list. Right. I think we all want this 12-step, yes. <laughs> um, the others were to observe holy days and festivals in whatever tradition, Christian, Jewish. In what way? Well, I think, so take the Christian tradition. Easter and Christmas, obviously, are the two big ones. I think, I mean, obviously, Christmas especially is overwhelmed with commercialism. But I think that they are a way of marking the transitions of the year, of recognizing that they they are kind of their markers in the in the calendar each year, mm. and you know Easter isn't just about Easter eggs and mm. and bunnies, but it's also it's certainly in the northern hemisphere, it's about the resurrection of nature, it's about the rediscovery of life after a time of darkness and uh, sort of being contained and withdrawn through the winter months. And there's all sorts of links to historical ancestral celebrations. I can think of a few here in Luxembourg, which have a similar theme to them. All about the darkness into light, all of this bringing of either spring or winter. Right. And the Christian festival of Easter is an adaptation of the pagan festival of Oystra. So, you know, so so observing holy days and festivals for me is a way of reminding yourself of the transition of life and also connecting with nature once more right so another one is to be in touch with nature which for many people in urban life can be more of a challenge but nature is a wonderful uh, teacher i i'm trying to remember who the philosopher was i think it was goethe the german writer goethe who spent a year, every day, he would spend an hour standing naked outside because he wanted to his body to be aware of sunshine and warmth during the summer and then the bleakness and the coldness of winter. He, he wanted to expose himself well, literally and Well, apparently that's very good for you. Apparently it's very good for your body. I think they're actually doing research into this right. in all sorts of ways and being exposed to extremities of Correct. weather is very good for us because we live in too cushioned a life. Right. Yes, we, with air conditioning and central heating, the, the extremities of the ex, of temperatures we're exposed to is very limited. Mm-hmm. So our body can't right. help its, uh, yeah, its immunity by itself. Um, I also think it's important to give to the future that, that you know, I'm, we all live, you know, three score years and, or, and ten or thereabouts. Well, the world's going to go on beyond us. Uh, climate change is also a desperate reminder that it's not just the here and now and, and our immediate profit and enjoyment that we should be concerned about. And then the final one, which you can't but do by itself, is to relax, to laugh at yourself. Let's face it, we're all ridiculous. You know, it is. Life is absurd. We're ridiculous. We make, we're so important to ourselves and, and the universe couldn't give a damn about us, frankly. Mm. You know, we could all die tomorrow and the world would go on. So you need to lighten up. And one of the great misfortunes of religion, I think, is that so much of it is just humorless. You know, the, the Tao, the killjoys, the life, life is wonderful. I mean, I say this as somebody whose life has been wonderful. But it's um it's there to be enjoyed the world is there to be um experienced and we need to laugh at ourselves as well because taking ourselves too seriously is the death of spirituality i think well thank you so much for talking through those those 12 steps with us i've made notes here as i'm going along and i'm seeing how many of them do i actually do but uh but i mean we're, we're talking now at a point in history where there's two, more than two wars going on, but two that are like in our news where we live right now, really Mm -hmm. dominating the headlines. We all know what they are. Some of them would say they have a religious influence. How can you bring your wealth of knowledge and experience as, as a religious leader to the minds of those in these places? Well, uh, regrettably, and to my great surprise, no, none of these war fronts have asked me for my opinion. So, um, <laughs> the great, the great tragedy of religion and politics is people who think who are who are so arrogant that they think only they are right, and if you disagree with me, you are wrong. And so, and much of the tragedy of religion has been not only 
are you wrong, but it, therefore it is my God-driven duty to kill you. And what, what a tragic misreading of, of spirituality and faith, in my opinion, that is. I mean, so I've written a book about spirituality. I'm no more informed than you or anybody else. I'm, like anybody else, bumbling through life, trying to do the best I can, getting it wrong nine times out of ten. But people, I mean, the tragedy in the Middle East, for example, if we just disregard the, uh, the political implications, uh, Palestinians in Gaza, whatever their faith, they want to live a good life. Israelis, whatever, whatever um, their political persuasions, want a good life. And often they want to get on with each other and it's the political right. realm that right. is, is causing havoc. But, but, I mean, obviously in the Middle East there are centuries of conflict and tension which it's not going to be solved by this particular conflict no. in the future. But, but in it, fact, you do also work in California with SURGE, which stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. Mm -hmm. And you started working with this. You joined after the George Floyd, George Floyd movement. Right. So you, you do what you can do where you live to help things. Like right. This. I mean, you're probably aware after that George Floyd murder, there was a huge uprising of, of anger and organisation against institutional racism. So here am I, a white man who's always lived in white-dominated society and for most of my life completely oblivious to the privileges that I've had, completely unaware uh, that there were doors that I, I wasn't even aware that there were doors that I was going through that I slammed shut for other people. So my involvement with Surge over the last three, three plus years has been, a, in addition to whatever political campaigning and so on I've been doing, has been a huge process of self-education about my complicity in systemic racism. Um, in the United States, of course, that's so tied up with the history of slavery which there are there's a political party which I will not name that now wants to deny that any history of slavery and want to, want to portray it as a good thing for the slaves because they learned valuable skills. Um, and it continues to this day that if you are in the States and you happen to have an Islamic name or an African-American name, there are doors that immediately are closed. Um, so... It's it's uncomfortable to acknowledge that about myself, that in Australia, in the outback, there were Aborigines. Uh, I was living a fairly harsh life. My life was one of cushy ease compared with them, with their life. And I, at the time, I was completely unaware of it. That was just the way it was. Why should I even challenge it in any way? But you are one of the... I would say minority of people who have actually developed a, a deep empathy and connected with this. Right, but it's it's uncomfortable. It's uh, to learn things about yourself that you would really wish were not true. Um, I'm ashamed to say I've told in the past racist jokes, um, you know, about Aborigines in, in Australia. I'm not proud of that, but I was sort of imbued in that culture. Um, so it's, and it's not enough, I, I mean, I've never, I've never burned a cross in somebody's front yard, so I can claim not to be a racist, but that's not enough. Unless you're challenging the system of racism, actively challenging it, you're contributing to it, you're, you're perpetuating it. So by doing nothing is not enough. Right. Mm -hmm. Doing nothing is actually doing something to perpetuate the system. Well, 
I, I'm so grateful that you've stopped by Luxembourg to give us some of your wisdom that I know Meredith cherishes hugely. And I will link to both of your books so that we can all uh, put them on the Christmas list so that we can all, whether we celebrate Christmas in a Christian way or just as a, a time of festival coming together, families enjoying the Christmas markets, but just to note the the changing of the seasons and to, to c- reconnect with nature and maybe not quite do the Goethe one hour naked outside. <laughs> I like some news headlines in a bad way there. But but I know you're going to stay with us for the right. next part of this show. It's Thank been you. a pleasure to be with you, Lisa. Thank, Thank you, you so much, for David. the honour of your invitation. Thank you. Thank you. And stay with us. So just coming up after this very short break, we'll talk to Carlotta Minderhout. The Lisa Burke Show. Carlotta, I think I already mispronounced your surname. Minderhout. Minderhout. I'm That's so sorry. Correct. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Alluding at all. to that wonderful dynamism in your family background. You're head of brand for Uniqlo Benelux. Uh, you started at Uniqlo in the Netherlands as PR manager. You were there for the Amsterdam opening in 2018, Den Haag 2020, 2019 moved into head of marketing in the Netherlands and now you are head of brand. So we have a big launch coming up this week in Luxembourg. Uh, it's very exciting for those of us who live in Luxembourg because um, we don't often see these these brands coming. And I know it seems to be a, a disjoint conversation perhaps with David, but not really, I don't think, in the philosophy Uniqlo. I think, I mean, I was listening to, to your story and it was very inspirational. I was literally hanging hanging at your lips and I need to get my hands on, on your book for sure. I think whilst listening to your story, I did find some similarities with the Japanese culture. Obviously, Uniqlo mm-hmm. being a Japanese brand, I know that the Japanese culture is very much focused on a lot of spirituality also in the traditions and in, in uh, the way that things are being executed, linking to community. So maybe that is the, the, the link between uh, between the two stories that we've uh, we found for sure. And then another link with the community is that you've really worked with the Luxembourg community here. Uh, so tell us about some of the, the links that you've made here. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Uniqlo, for us, it's very important whenever we enter a new market that we make uh, the effort, uh, the extra effort to really connect with the local community. So we've been really, really lucky. And, and we were talking about this earlier. Everybody has been so welcoming and so friendly. We're um, a very friendly community <laughs> here in Luxembourg. Absolutely, absolutely. We've been very lucky to find some local fans of the brand uh, that have really contributed to uh, this upcoming store opening. One of them has just walked in behind us Exactly, here. <laughs> exactly. I was... Uh, Looking at her just now, yes. Um, no, but we've been really, really lucky. I think uh, just a few examples. We've been able to work with uh, a local uh, illustrator, Lynn Cousin, who uh, designed a beautiful illustration, uh, especially for the store opening, uh, which can be found in our store uh, and on some novelty products that we'll be handing out to the first 100 customers. Uh, but also uh, Julie Conrads, who is a furniture de- designer, product designer, who has created some beautiful furniture utilizing uh, some donated Uniqlo materials in uh, in the chairs that she designed. Um, so those are just a, a few examples of local partnerships that have made working on this opening an absolute pleasure and uh, we cannot wait to open our doors uh, this week. And uh, given your long experience as well in PR and managing uh, brands and marketing, you have probably seen over the last few years things change so fast in that world and the way in which you work with dare I use the word influencers or you, you're working across so many media platforms the the idea of reaching your community is changing all the time it is it is and especially I think for for a brand like ours where um, we tend to say that we are made for all. We don't have one specific customer. We uh, always, whenever I'm in store, I'm always surprised by the diversity of the customers that, that come and visit us from uh, young teenagers uh, uh, buying sort of their first outfit for the first day back in school to mothers together with their sons or businessmen that are looking for that perfect uh, work shirt. Um, so in, indeed, when, when thinking of the marketing strategy, for us, it's really important that we uh, reach as many people as possible. So it's trying to find that ultimate sort of mix of influencers, more traditional media, but also again that element of of connecting with the local community because ultimately we want our customers to enjoy our products and enjoy visiting our stores in order for them to then 
tell their friends, tell their families as, as ultimate. That is the best way of doing marketing, right? Word of mouth is, uh, is, is the ideal type of marketing. Mm -hmm. So that is what we try to really integrate in, in our strategy. And in fact, you also have something which is very dear to my heart, Because, you know, obviously being a news organization, we don't um, promote brands, we don't advertise. But really important in what you have is you've set up a Uniqlo studio. So it's re-Uniqlo. Re-Uniqlo studio, correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes, this is a, a global initiative that we've been rolling out uh, in various uh, markets where we have stores, which is a very uh, exciting uh, new element to our in-store uh, shopping experience. It's a studio where uh, customers can bring in their uh, old Uniqlo items that maybe have a little rip or a stain um, to get it uh, restored. Uh, we have in-house in uh, staff who are trained extensively uh, to actually make these uh, adjustments in order for our customers to enjoy our products much longer than uh, maybe they would have. So that's one element that focuses more on the repairing of product. Uh, but we also have an element of upcycling or maybe giving a new element, a new touch to a certain product by, for example, embroidery. So it's really uh, allowing, hopefully allowing our customers to look at Our clothing in a different way and enjoying it for a longer period um, uh, and adjusting the product to to that moment in 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 their life that they feel they might want a little extra touch to their uh, to their product but it's also extending the life of a, a clothing product and i know from speaking to other people that every year we have mountains of clothing that is literally put on landfill. Apparently, I cannot remember the number, but somebody who works in the fashion uh, industry and works in circularity, she said to me that there are so many clothes made in the world each year that even if you donate and give them away, still clothes end up on landfill, which to me seems extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And that is that is a serious, uh, serious issue. And um, with indeed the introduction of this Reuniqlo studio, what we try to do is really change the way how people look at clothing. Uh, the example that I mentioned just now, if a shirt has a stain or a rip, don't throw it away, don't donate it, see whether you can restore it and therefore enjoy it for a longer period. Uh, uh, and, and with that, we refer to our uh, clothing, our product, everything that we do uh, with the term livewear. Um, and that really explains the design philosophy behind our product. So what we try to do is create clothing that's very simple in its design, but also is a very, very high quality. So with that, we already try to really extend uh, the lifespan of our product um, because we want to create products that really fit into the daily lives of our customers and are relevant now, but also in 10 years time. And with this edition of the Reuniqlo Studio, we try to go even beyond that and, uh, and extending that lifespan even further. And can you tell us a little bit about where the clothing is made? Yes, so we um, produce on a global scale. Um, we uh, work with several uh, partners worldwide. Uh, we have a list of uh, partners that we work with uh, on a, a very uh, long term. Um, so this is uh, in various uh, places uh, across the globe. Um, but we also, uh, in our case, tend to look a bit more locally. For example, our linen uh, material is sourced in Belgium and in France. So that's an example of a product that's being sourced uh, more closer to where we are. But we, we produce on a, on a global scale. Obviously, we're a global brand. So. But, you, but the factory workers are treated well, I'm assuming. Yes, and yes. It's observed, of yes, because yes. of course there's stories uh, on that too, which we don't need to delve into right now. Why have you chosen to open in Luxembourg? I mean, it's, it's nice for us to have something else on the high street. And, it's, I, and I, know, I, I know about Uniqlo from London, where you have wonderful Liberty Prince. You worked with Liberty. Absolutely, Liberty. yes. Uh, <laughs> You're a like, fan. You're a fan, are you? I am, and I know them very Very well, and I love the Liberty Prince. Um, yeah, so uh, with Luxembourg, it's a completely different market and it's quite small in some ways. So why have you chosen here? Yeah, we felt uh, that it was a logical step, a logical next step in the growth of our business. Um, uh, it really sort of strengthens our business in Benelux as a region, region. As you may know, we already have stores in both Belgium and the Netherlands. And we felt this, uh, this was the right moment for us to introduce our product to the people in Luxembourg. Uh, of course, it took us some time to find the right location. Uh, we really make sure we do a lot 
lot of extensive research to our customers and how our life or products can fit into their daily lives. Uh, we wanted to find the right store at the right location in order for us to really build that perfect uh, store uh, to introduce ourselves to uh, to uh, local customers. Um, but we felt now was the right time. And uh, as mentioned before, we've already had so many great responses and uh, because Luxembourg is such an international place, uh, a lot of people tend to know us already from uh, Belgium, from the Netherlands, from London, uh, sometimes even from New York. So uh, we feel that now is is the perfect time uh, for uh, local people to uh, to enjoy our products. Well, we're delighted about it as well. It's, it's it's a nice thing again, moving towards Christmas time. We have something else to, to think about for gifts for, for people, along with tithing, of course. <laughs> we, that is our number one. Um, and then just describe what what do you mean by lifewear philosophy? Yeah, so I think uh, I've tried to explain it a, a bit earlier. I think it's uh, obviously the basic of how we try to design our clothing, but it really goes beyond that. It's um, something that all of the people that work within the company always keep in mind in terms of executing uh, their their work. But it's also making that connection to uh, the local community, seeing how we can contribute as a brand. Um, it's also a matter of uh, seeing if maybe some of our staff members can volunteer locally, again, contributing to, to society. It's doing product donations uh, to people in need. It's doing financial donations. We have a, a very uh, long-term partnership with UNHCR, for example, uh, the refugee uh, NGO. Um, so it really goes beyond just the product. It's really a philosophy that we uh, tend to, to hold really, uh, really close to our hearts. Well, I'm quite sure with those stories and that philosophy behind it, it makes your job as head of brand and your your complete experience in marketing and PR to be able to say those things makes it more valuable and enjoyable to you, I'm sure. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's uh, an absolute pleasure and honour uh, to, to do my job every day. Oh, well, I I'm so happy that you've come to Luxembourg and you've come here with Jean-Francois, who's been very quiet in the corner. And of course, Emma here, who is a social media guru for RTL. She has done some lovely uh, TikTok videos as well. I've seen, I've seen her in action there. Uh, I... I, I I suggest to everybody to go and to watch Emma on TikTok. <laughs> um, but but aside from that, you know, David, you've given us such a, a great amount to think about. And along with tithing, as we move in towards those those Christmas holiday months, uh, Christmas decorations already being put up. I know we're still in October and we haven't gone through Halloween yet, but um, tithing and those two books on spirituality, they will be in the Christmas stockings this year for my family. It's been a great pleasure to be with you this morning morning, Lisa, and with you, Carlotta. Likewise. Thank you both so much. And I wish you all, dear listeners and viewers, a very, very wonderful week ahead. The Lisa Burke Show. 